2: is made up very little of it is actually really real it tends to be a matter of social convention and codified power and codified knowledge and so on and so forth the structures of society our structures of education our structures of finance our structures of government and control these are all made up and all have changed in the past and all will change in the future
1: I'm Salisa Steele.
0: I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast.
1: Welcome to episode 321, which features a conversation with Julian Stodd. Julian is a writer, a researcher, an evidence-based practitioner, and as he describes himself, an explorer of the social age. Jeff and Julian talk about what the social age is and what living in the social age means for learning and leadership. They talk about social collaborative learning, expertise, storytelling, failure, the curse of busyness, and disengineering. These are lofty and philosophical subjects, but ones with profound and practical implications for learning businesses. Jeff and Julian spoke in August 2022. (laughs)
0: Can you tell us a bit about the the work that you do? I know you've got Sea Salt Learning. I, I think that's kind of the the hub of, of your work. What what kind of uh, work do you usually do?
2: Yeah, so my work explores aspects of uh, social collaborative learning, leadership, the creation of culture, and models of change at the intersection of formal and social systems. So essentially. The social age is a term I use to describe the context of my work, indeed the context of our organisations. It describes a a somewhat subtly evolved reality and the ways in which we need to adapt uh, pretty much everything as a result of that. You know, my my work is largely distinguished by being uh, exploratory and quite often wrong. It's very much a process of exploration and sense-making and trying not to rely too much on that which we have inherited before you know essentially it says technology primarily has changed almost everything but i'm very interested in the social nature of that change what has changed in terms of social structures and hence organizational structures indeed even national structures around that and you know how would we adapt to that new reality
0: well and i've Already come to appreciate and what I've experienced of your work so far. the, the fact that you're very often to, willing to say I was wrong before, or I thought this way before. Now I think this way, and in and wrestling with some of these concepts that are at the core of your your work. And I'd love to get you to go a little deeper around that concept of the social age because I think it is so fundamental to what you do. So can you say more about you know what that means to you, and then you know for listeners. Who are going to be engaged in thinking about learning experiences, designing and facilitating learning. I know social learning is at the core of that as well. Can you talk a little bit more about how that potentially impacts their work?
2: Yeah. So, you know, if we think about some of the broad trends that we've seen, one trend is away from infrastructure being owned and controlled. So when you know, my father used to work in, in higher education research and Growing up, we used to write our shopping lists on the the back of the, the punch cards that he would bring home. As he was doing his doctorate, he would feed thousands of these punch cards into a computer that sat in the basement of the town hall because the university didn't have a room big enough to fit the computer into Now, you know, clearly that was one model of infrastructure, massive, expensive, complex and owned. Today, to all intents and purposes, infrastructure is is devolved and democratized. So the ownership of infrastructure no longer in and of itself gives an organization mass and power and potential. So as infrastructure becomes distributed, the very question of what does an organization do or own or hold becomes distributed. Another thing technology has given us is radical connectivity. So historically, our connection tended to be dictated by our language, by our geography, by our education, our social status, our class. So it tended to be sort of local and similar and dogmatic. And now... It's probably global and distributed, but potentially still dogmatic. But, it, you know, we are radically connected in many different ways across many different technologies. In my own research in the National Health Service in the UK, across 5,000 medical professionals, when I asked them about the technologies they used to connect, to collaborate, to be effective, which is essentially another way of defining learning, they described 17 different technologies, 16 of which they were forbidden from using. So, you know, we see that radical connection happens often in informal and hidden spaces. So we start to paint a picture of individuals connected in local geographical structures, informal organizational structure, structures, and in global distributed structures, but being effective through all of them. So, the very notion of what an organisation is starts to blur around the edges at the very same time as the notion of career fragments. You know, the idea you would spend 30 years in one place is largely a fiction to most people today. So, you know, just scraping the surface, we see that all sorts of things have changed. And what I try to remember in my own work is that almost everything we see around us is made up. Very little of it is actually really real. It tends to be a matter of social convention and codified power and codified knowledge and so on and so forth. The structures of society our structures of education, are structures of finance, are structures of government and control. These are all made up and all have changed in the past and all will change in the future. And as we move into this kind of interesting post-industrial, hyper-connected, world, we should ask ourselves, what should we carry forward? Because in a very pragmatic sense, we will need to invent anew the structures that we are going to inhabit.
0: And you talk about in kind of in concert with that radical connectivity, the idea of the democratization of capability, you know, so capabilities that used to be centralized in organizations are now distributed to individuals who now have at least the potential to accomplish much more than an individual could have in the past. But then you also say there's this need for complex collaboration. You know, it, it may involve collaborating with people who are completely different from you, who you disagree with, who might even be characterized as enemies. But to get things done in this radically connected world we live in, that's, that's now necessary. Can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, you know, let me sort of put it like this. We
2: inhabit a space of understanding, which is is both individually created and socially co-created. So our our understanding of pretty much anything is is created in that way. You know, my understanding of how retail works or finance or what the rules of an organization are, what the rules of my culture. These are things which I have created or participated in the creation of as, as a group social phenomena. And then I become trapped within it. So very often, we end up learning and performing within a sort of socially constructed reality, which becomes set in stone. So we learn our own constraint. Now, when organizations talk about innovation and change, and and trust me, nearly all of them do, they are trying to reinvent themselves to do something different. But they're trying to reinvent themselves within this glass bubble of learnt constraint, So we talk a good game, but ultimately we become limited by what we can do. I mean, you know, to give you a a sense of it, I I was just talking earlier today with somebody from a a global organization with a, you know, massive cultural challenge, which they want to solve in six weeks. And I said, well, why is this suddenly so urgent? And and they said, well, the person before had it for 18 months, but they were just too busy to, to do anything with it. And I said, they probably weren't too busy. They probably just didn't have a blind clue what to do that would be acceptable. Because clearly anything that you do will challenge the power of today. You know, people who hold power today are unlikely to want a future where they may not hold so much power. But that general rebalancing of power, the recontracting of the social contract between individual and organisation is, is a core aspect of the social age. If we want people to be engaged, if we want to do things differently, if we want to get the wisdom of broader knowledge and broader communities, we'll have to earn it. And sometimes that will be uncomfortable. So you, you tend to find that people split into three spaces, you know, that which I know and am comfortable with, that which I can tolerate as different, and that which I abhor. And understanding where those boundaries lie is important because... We are likely to need a a sort of fracturing and fragmentation of our certainty if we wish to truly find some kind of advantage, be it sort of intellectual or competitive or, or otherwise.
0: Well, it's interesting. I hadn't really made this connection before we started talking here, but I'm, I'm at a conference right now and the conference has a theme, as they often do. And the theme of this one happens to be that disruption equals opportunity. And it occurs to me that, you know, in, in all of this radical connection that we have and this ability to connect with others Uh, It opens up the possibility for other points of view to come in if we will let them do that and if we'll invite that disruption. I mean, do you think in those terms of actively inviting some form of disruption in so that you you do shake things up and, and can start to think differently?
2: Yeah, yeah, at the moment, I've got some work running, which looks at social movements. So how change happens through social movements. And it's quite interesting, because in fact, it's one of the areas where I've really shifted my own understanding. What you tend to see is that social change is about the fracturing of a, a legacy dominant narrative, and the emergence and rapid prototyping of new dominant narratives. But that time of inflection is a very painful one. You see the reimposition of legacy power. You see the elasticity of social norms and narratives. And sometimes you see the emergence of the new. So we we see that at the moment in all sorts of ways. We're seeing it around hybrid work and return to work. We're seeing it around gender identity. We're seeing it around uh, discussions around transgender and what that means, you know, we're seeing all sorts of social narratives which are being challenged and stretched and evolved. So to say that sort of opportunity lies through disturbance is is, is blindingly obvious. Opportunity doesn't probably lie by continuing to do the very same things we've already done and not adapting. But what we're often unwilling to, to entertain is the notion that we individually are wrong. You know, it's quite easy for me. I, I was writing the other day about this. We, Most people, when you ask them, have no difficulty in describing a legacy version of themselves that is a stranger to them. They say, you know, when I was at at university, I was this rather awkward social individual and I had this terrible taste in fashion and some questionable friends. And, you know, now I'm an entirely different person. So looking back, we tend to have no difficulty in seeing that we have always changed. Looking forward, you know, many of us don't sit here today thinking, oh, my goodness, I've only I'm only 60 percent of the person I need to be. It's quite easy to find the fault in others, but it's quite difficult to find that disturbance in ourselves, especially when we're busy. And busyness is, is the curse and the great excuse of modern organizations. It's, it's consistently the number one thing that people come up with to say they are unable to learn, to evolve, to change. They're just too busy. But when you think about it, it doesn't seem all that likely. You know, busy as we may be, it just doesn't seem likely that there's all that much work, that we are constantly busy. We've probably just created systems that make us busy. Uh, When we see somebody sat around doing nothing, we don't tend to reward them and say, what can I learn from you? We just call them idle and disengaged. You know, we are rewarded for being busy. We have this sort of heroic culture of busyness that sort of fails to question why. Why are we so busy? That leads you into thinking, well, what could we stop doing? What could we disengineer? What could we take apart? What could we leave behind? One of the most important questions, unless you believe that development is additive, that you just keep adding more flour and water and eggs and sugar until the cake becomes fantastic, you've got to ask, "What, what can I take away? What can I free up? What can we stop doing? What can we stop believing or knowing?
1: At Tagoris, we're experts in the global business of lifelong learning, and we use our expertise to help clients better understand their markets, connect with new customers, make the right investment decisions, and grow their learning businesses. We achieve these goals through expert market assessment, strategy formulation, and platform selection services. If you are looking for a partner to help your learning business achieve greater reach, revenue, and impact, learn more at tagoras.com slash services.
0: As I'm sort of reflecting on what I've read of yours so far, it seems almost inevitable that if you're going to wrestle with this, you're going to have to evolve into some sort of New view of leadership, and and you have in fact focused quite a bit on on leadership, what it means to be a leader in the social age. Can can you talk a little bit about how leadership is is now different in, in the types of you know structures that uh, that that you're describing, and in how somebody who aspires to lead or is leading is is actually able to accomplish that now?
2: Yeah, I mean, my work on social leadership looks at leading at the intersection of systems. So it doesn't say we need to get rid of what came before. It says we need to broaden and add to it. So so roughly speaking, it says in the industrial organisation, we needed a type of leadership which was about resource and management and control. It was about collecting together diverse talent, using system and process and established power to direct it in, in one direction, to quality assure it, to get the output right. And it built a pyramid with people at the top, holding power and people at the bottom doing the work, you know, so the traditional Taylorist view of the the modern organisation. What I think we need now is to add to that, to make it the the multidimensional organisation. So we still need some formal power, but we also need social. We need the authority-led organisation, the authentic leader, leaders who are connected within many and diverse communities. On average, uh, across my research on the landscape of communities, people describe they are probably... Uh, a member of at least 15 different communities that help them to be effective. Most of them are informal, social, hidden, legacy, precursor networks. So we need leaders that understand that and that understand the types of power that operate in those spaces and that understand who controls the narrative and indeed who controls consequence in those spaces. So I have a major research project running this year looking at experimentation and failure across around 60 of the Mm. FTSE 250 companies And beyond. And what's interesting to me is that in the the prototype work which I've completed on that, people describe all sorts of elaborate mechanisms for the initiation and governance of experimentation. I mean, half of them say they're unable to experiment essentially, but of the ones that are able to, they can either do 300 experiments without getting breathless or they can do three big sanctioned organisational ones. They take a whole range of different approaches but not a single one of them so far has described a methodology for failure. They leave it to intuition, which means the experience of failure is erratic and tends to flow along lines of social connection. So if I like you, I'm less likely to punish you than if I don't like you or if I know you. When we leave failure to intuition, the experience of failure becomes erratic and if the experience is erratic, people are unlikely to take too many chances. So we when we look at the ways we rewire or rebuild our organizations, it's likely to include both a formal and a social perspective, which would recognize that people come and go in different ways, that they collaborate in different ways, in different spaces, that trust flows unevenly between spaces. And we can see this happening, you know, you see organisations that scale without accruing or accreting much hierarchy system and process. You see organisations that are just bedevilled and trapped by system and process. Typically, the very mechanisms that made us safe yesterday, cast a shadow into the future. And very few organisations have a specific capability in disengineering themselves, they tend to just bolt things on or acquire things, but they never truly rewire themselves from within. And I think that's one of the great challenges today. In, in, in 2019, I published a book called The Socially Dynamic Organization with a rather grand title of a new model of organizational design. And I suspect that very few people read it, but I also suspect it's one of the most important things I've written because it I think you have to take it down to that. What type of organization will you design and how will you lead within it and how will people learn within it and how will it be effective?
0: What's the role of storytelling in in that? Because I know you emphasised the importance of stories as a leader, being able to tell authentic stories and the connection between story and culture. And of course, culture seems to be sort of deeply embedded into this idea of the social age and the idea of being able to make progress and and change. Can you elaborate on those a little bit? Storytelling is sort of comes under fire a bit recently, but I I think that's more to do with some of
2: the programs and quality of work around storytelling that you see. I mean, in my work you won't find anything about hero journeys and all the rest of it. I, I, I'm not into that space. What I'm primarily interested in is the way that we construct different narratives, individually, collectively, organizationally, and how they intersect. So, you know, in, inside your own head you have constructed a, a story about me and I've constructed one about you and together we may construct a story about somebody else. We um, we lead, we seek to project stories or create a space for people to invest themselves in stories. You know, we are narrative creatures at, at heart. We, we from our very earliest ages, we tell stories. Yeah, I, I've been uh, off camping with my three-year-old and well, we've had a couple of weeks under canvas in, in the depths of Wales. And, and we didn't take any books with us. But so it's story time. I would... I would just light a fire and and make up a story. And when we uh, when we got home last week, uh, we went to, to bed up in his room and I, and I said, "Should I read you a story?" And he said, "Oh, uh, Papa, no. Talky um, talky stories are for when we're camping. Reedy reedy stories are for when we're back home." <laughs> I just love that. Talky talky stories, which are, you know, kind of made up on the spot. Ready ready stories are, are, are the ones that are captured within books. And hence, they're like butterflies pinned. We need a bit of a mixture of both, you know, a bit of a bit of the ready ready ones and a bit of the talky talky ones. And then, of course, it raises questions about who owns them. So, you know, your reputation is a story. We're, we're only talking today because. Uh, I I had a very uh, great conversation with our our mutual friend in, in I think, in a car in a a thunderstorm. And and your name came up and my name came up. And and then she shared something of our reputation with each other. So reputation is a story told about us and one that traps us and one that enables us. You know, you can understand pretty much anything through the lens of stories.
0: And I'm thinking, you know, the the people who are listening who in a sense, are the weavers of stories or could be the weavers of stories across these kind of networks and communities that they serve, because most of them are representing membership communities, membership organizations, or at the very least, they're, they're not so much focused on a single organization. They're, they're focused on dispersed groups of people for whom they're trying to create and, and facilitate learning experiences. Do you see anything Different or are there nuances in this that would ap- apply to that group of people as opposed to say an L and D professional in a corporation? Um, or, or is it really the same dynamic regardless? Well, you know, you should probably have invited say back for
2: that uh, this part of the conversation. That, I mean some things are the same. So, you know, cognitively, certain aspects are the same, the way that we respond to stories, the way that we frame our, our learning and understanding within them. But because the context is different then I think the role of stories is different. I, I, I personally, at this stage in, in my work, uh, tend to favor, or be, perhaps I should say, be more interested in social collaborative models of learning, which typically use, you know, narrative and discourse structures to um, allow the social co-creation or social creation of knowledge within a scaffolding or framework. So there is typically a background, a framework or a a chapter structure, a narrative structure that we want a program to hold. But it's then about how much knowledge you want to put into it and how much you want to create space for divergent understanding to emerge. Now, I think, you know, from my understanding of your audience, they they will probably have less formally mandated structure in terms of what learning looks like. But I still think that there's a role of, of scaffolding to help guide people. You know, at the very lightest level, sometimes I, I just like to use campfire conversations where you can just use one, two or three questions just to guide people into uncertainty. It's almost the greatest gift you can give people is, is a space to be uncertain within. And You know, I ran a session this morning as part of my work on quiet leadership, which is is leadership in the smallest of actions, on kindness. So I had, you know, people from around the world came together and, and I said to them, you know, we're just spending an hour talking about what kindness, what it is, why is it important, how does it work? But most people would struggle to remember any time in their life ever that they've actually stopped to have a conversation about what kindness is, you know, how does it work, how does it break? is the intention enough or is it the impact that counts and i think that's often the way we pick up words like tokens as if they carry implicit meaning but in fact the meaning they have imbued in them and so the more dialogue and conversation and exploration you can do around it the more meaning you can find within it you know this is a very active debate though so say and i both know uh, donald clark a fantastic Mm -hmm. researcher and thinker you you obviously know and you know donald and i will regularly explore our differences and and you know he will bring you a very different view on leadership and a very different view on storytelling and he you know he's right to do so Mm -hmm. i i still wouldn't argue conclusively that leadership is even a thing but i think it's more of a thing than he believes because People talk about it as if it's real. And belief is an important force. But we've been talking recently about this relationship between language and meaning and the extent to which learning is a process that can either be constrained or enabled by our existing language. I think it's a rich area to explore.
0: That's interesting. Yes. And, and Donald has actually been on the podcast as well. I thought i will have to go back and see if we uh, if we discussed leadership with him or not. I can't recall. Right now, it it does occur to me as as you were talking about sort of our audience and what they do that I've traditionally thought I continue to think that there is tremendous opportunity to take much or to capitalize much more on the informal and and social opportunities that are available there, because I think what tends to happen in the world that I live and work in is people who are running programs, whether those are continuing education programs or their conferences or whatever, are trying as much as possible to impose a formal and measurable structure on something where the, the most value might be in the informal, in the uh, the, the less structured, because it's all about you know, can you earn credit? You know, can you establish that you know this event happened and I was associated with it, and so I get to say I learned something. A lot of it's about, frankly sort of the distribution and the perpetuation of what, what gets thought of as expertise. And so I'd love to ask you that, because it, it just kept occurring to me as, as I was reading what I have read of yours. How does expertise work? Can you be an expert, really? Is, is that just a, a myth that uh, we've created for ourselves, or at least how we conceive of expertise? Are we, are we flawed in how we think of that?
2: I don't think we're flawed, but we may be incomplete. You know, my work is held in writing, so I write and publish every day. And if you're sort of particularly interested in the work on social and collaborative learning, I have a, a book which is, is free as an ebook called "The Social Learning Guidebook," which kind of explores some of the the research and 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 structure and ideas around that. You know, the notion of expertise is largely a pragmatic one. I think expertise is very real, both deep expertise and also the the expertise of interconnection. So we are to some extent, in the age of the generalist, and and much to the horror of probably both philosophers and academics. We are in an age where, to some extent, good enough is good enough. So there are instances when expertise needs to be deep and validated. And there are instances when cursory knowledge is enough. <laughs> the trick is knowing which space you're in. Uh, you know, I don't want my dentist uh, practicing just-in-time learning from something they saw on YouTube last week. However, I do want them to be aware of the latest insights and innovation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe there's a, a balance between it. What I suspect, the way I'll probably characterize the conversation is this. And again, this is something I look at in the socially dynamic organization. Historically, you and I decided to start a business making uh, a coffee shop chain, a global coffee shop chain. We would just say, OK, we need somebody that's going to find the real estate. We need somebody that knows how to procure coffee cups. We need some baristas and somebody that knows how to train them. And we'd better have somebody to look after the money. So we would just part of our process of creation would be to define the, the skills to recruit people the expertise we need, build some systems and processes because we want the coffee to look and taste the same in in London or, or Paris or at Changi Airport. You know, we, we want it to be the same. And that would be that. But today, we probably can gain access through our networks of primary and secondary connections to much broader capability and expertise. And that in itself may challenge us more, but give us a richer environment in which to explore if we earn the right to do so. So we see the sponsorship of trust through networks into secondary and tertiary connections. And that becomes more important. I think a modern organization should have, you know, a direct employed base, but then a kind of aligned or engaged base and, and and understanding that it's it's more layered than it used to be. And hence, how do we think about boundaries? You know, are boundaries walls that need to be fortified? Or do they do they need free ports or trading posts or gateways? And how will we earn the right to be in conversations? How will we recognise the contribution to those? conversations and, and so on
0: and so forth. I do always like to ask guests about their own lifelong learning. Obviously, writing is very much at the at the core of yours, and I'd love to sort of know how that evolved, how that came to be for you. I also, you use illustrations a lot, and I assume you're the one creating those illustrations. Maybe you could talk about that as well, but the writing and and. And visually expressing yourself and how those fit into how you go about your, your own lifelong learning.
2: I started out kind of in, in, uh, as a pretty mediocre researcher in, in a sort of postgrad academic space mm-hmm. um, and was tempted out of that into the organisational one, it's establishing an e-learning business, and you know, finding out that you actually could earn some money and afford to buy yourself a, a new T-shirt once a year. So, you know, I, I kind of swung wildly between academic and industry for, for the first ten years of my career, but neither really suited me. You know, I didn't I didn't like being in academia because it was too abstract, and I didn't like being purely in industry because I wasn't doing anything I was proud of, even though we were kind of very successful. So. Around 2010, when we sold that e-learning business, it gave me a bit of breathing space to get back into writing. And I started forming those ideas and that work around the social age, finding a very conversational style. I mean, at the time, just using WordPress as as this emergent blogging platform, I just found a space and an audience and really loved it. But it was only after a couple of years, really, when the iPad came out, that I could seamlessly integrate some really terrible illustration within that work, and it just exploded. I mean, it drove up engagement tenfold, and hundredfold. It, it was kind of embarrassing uh, at the start, but I'm, you know, I mean, like a, a mediocre artist. I'm okay. You know, watercolor is really my thing. But suddenly, I was I was illustrating on the iPad, and for a few years, it kind of all swirled around, and then I realised that. My writing was changing and the way that I write changes. And, and, and now, you know, I write every day and adhere to a, a principle of working out loud where I share my evolving thinking, which is really a very defensive posture because it, it, some people have the, the confidence to say, you know, this is the answer, this is the thing. I, I, I don't, you know, I don't particularly like conflict and I'm just not all that certain about it. So I tend to say, you know, here's what I'm thinking at the moment, and and sometimes things emerge from that that maybe are true, and and sometimes they just embarrassingly die and fade away, and that's okay. That I say that works for me pretty well. So illustration is interesting. I I, I, I typically start with the illustration and then write around it. Not not always, but I, I tend to do that, and. I think that illustration is a language that's the same as words. It gives us a language. So my writing is, or my I suppose I should say my output is very wrapped up between illustration and, and writing. <laughs> I remember the, 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 the first review that came in for the Social Leadership Handbook, which was the first uh, major book I published in in 2014 for the first edition. The the, the first review that came in was uh, commendably short. I like the illustrations. (laughs) So they probably didn't even read it. But that's uh, I think a lot of people know me around that side of things. In fact, if I'm honest, I suspect a lot of people don't read Occasionally people say, oh, I discovered your work and I went back and I read everything. And I feel terribly, terribly sorry for them because it's, it's, it's um, you know, it, it's very much evolutionary. But illustrating helps me think and thinking helps me write. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I'm very lucky that my, my work has been adopted by, you know, just these fantastic organizations around the world, which then gives me more opportunities to meet more fantastic new people and do more fantastic new work and funnily enough say and i are just embarking on the journey to to tackle the learning science guidebook so that's going to be a, a book we're hoping to write together and i i feel sure i can tempt donald in some writing uh, one day as well so <laughs> it's uh, you know writing is something that brings us together but the, the the trick is to remember that difference is actually a good thing you know you see even in our space, in, in that in sort of learning and development space, you, you see a lot of people who are, are willing to be smug in their own confidence about how right they are. And, I, you know, I'm glad for them. I'm glad that people, you know, have this great certainty. I don't. I'm perfectly OK with, with critiquing my own work because it's, it's, it's very full of holes. But if you want certainty, do what everybody else does uh, and being sure about the things other people are sure about. But if, if you really want to learn, you need uncertainty and you need to test things in practice and be willing to learn from it which could be you know painful and uncomfortable and it it won't happen by chance you have to curate or create the environment in which that can happen mm-hmm.
1: Julian Stott is founder and captain of Sea Salt Learning. You can find links to Sea Salt Learning's website and Julian's learning blog in the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 321. His blog is a great way to go deeper on the subjects he and Jeff talked about in this interview and an example of working out loud. So we recommend you check the blog out.
0: At leadinglearning.com slash episode 321, you'll also see options for subscribing to the podcast. And we'd be grateful if you would subscribe if you haven't yet as subscriptions give us some data on the impact of the podcast.
1: We'd also be grateful if you would rate us on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, especially if you find the Leading Learning Podcast valuable. Jeff and I personally would appreciate it and ratings and reviews help us show up when people search for content on leading a learning business. Go to leadinglearning.com slash Apple to leave a rating.
0: Lastly, please spread the word. At leadinglearning.com slash episode 321, there are links to find Leading Learning on Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. We also welcome good old-fashioned word of mouth. So please suggest the podcast to others who might benefit.
1: Thanks again, and see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast.